0: Well, hello there, folks. What a long time it's been. I think it's been a year now since the last episode of Booze, Booms, and Busts. Is anyone even listening to this? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Uh, The reason we didn't upload any episodes, myself and Sam Falker, is because Sam had a lot of commitments and, sadly, uh, was no longer able to co-host Booze, Booms, and Busts on a regular basis. Hopefully, we'll see him at some point in the future. But, you know, a year passed. My personal life changed uh, quite a lot. And, uh, you know, over time, I just felt uh, a hankering for another episode of Booze, Booms, and Busts. So I did reach out to my good old friend, Nikolai Hubble, who has been on Booze, Booms, and Busts in the past, and see if he'd like to uh, be a co-host here. And uh, he said yes, thank- thankfully for me. So uh, here he is today. Nikolai, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, great. I couldn't turn down Booze, Booms, or Busts. So it was a three out of three. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a good combination, isn't it? It works for me. We've, uh, we have we tend to focus on the busts and the booze. Uh, but we do get we get some some boom, booms in there as well.
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly. Now, uh, okay, just as a quick recap. Um, so the purpose of booze, booms, and busts. Uh, I'm I'm just recollecting what the original idea was was to combine beer drinking with market analysis. Um, however, you know, there's such an enormous time gap now between Nikolai and I that this this is this is quite tricky. So Nikolai is now in Australia. I'm in Scotland, um, and it's currently 11.35 a.m. in the morning. And if I start drinking now, this is a level of degeneracy that, you know, is generally reserved for the morning after a stag night or something. This, you know, even though I am a Scotsman in Scotland right now, 11.30 seems to be pushing it. Nikolai, you said this is a a lunchtime beer, but, um, you know, I don't don't go for lunch at 11.30 anyway.
1: Yeah, I thought that's when you'd start drinking for your lunchtime beer. But I mean, as a German, it's quite usual to have a beer at breakfast and lunch and and dinner. Um, so I didn't I didn't see the problem with this at all. It's a shame I'm not in Scotland and you're not in Australia. Then this would work out just fine.
0: Yeah, you know, I've still never been to Australia. Uh, I kind of lost faith with uh, with going there during the lockdown, based on how crazy the Aussie government was, you know. But uh, you're you, despite being an anarchist, you've headed there all the same.
1: It's a big place. It's a big, big place. There's lots of different rules and lots of different places. In fact, the road rules are different in different parts of Australia. The the word, grammar, punctuation, all these different, the spelling, it's all different in different parts of Australia. In the part I'm in, we actually graduate from high school a year earlier or a year younger um, than the rest of Australia. I'm not sure anyone here knows how to spell or do grammar anyway, so they don't really worry about it. And I don't think they did any lockdowns. They just kept the rest of the world out. So, that they didn't have to do lockdowns. And it ended up working quite well. So, I think Queensland, uh, outside the cities, was probably one of the best places in the world to sit out COVID. Um, Second only, of course, to Japan, which is where I went to to sit out COVID, where mask wearing was ubiquitous. But I don't think there was any other real constraints on my life at all in Japan. Um, So, come to Australia, Boas, or to Japan. Yeah,
0: I've, uh, you know, I've actually. I've done uh, more traveling the last 12 months than in the you know, the rest of my life. Don't know about the rest of my life combined, but certainly close to it. Uh, but still never been to the Eastern Hemisphere. No Asia, no uh, Australasia, no Oceania. Um, Got to do it sometime. And uh, as we've been, uh, as we'll probably discuss this episode, uh, it's probably a good time to do it now rather than in the future because uh, traveling... Uh, on long distance flights and whatever may become a lot more expensive in the future, uh, depending on how things turn out. If you're allowed. Yeah, if you're allowed, uh, you know, if I'm a member of the elite uh, private jet using uh, class. But okay, before we get there, though, Nikolai, this is, you know, market analysis, it's been ages since we've done booze, booms and busts. What has been the most important event of the last 12 months for investors, would you say?
1: The most important event, well, it's 12 months, end of 2022. I'm going to go with the complete reversal of public opinion and sort of intelligent um, analysis on net zero and climate change and renewable energy. I think the worms turned in a fashion that amazes me, where even politicians now are acknowledging this. And I've always been. So not so interested in in politics because you know it's so fickle and and so many lies and all these sorts of things. But even I didn't think that they could reverse course and backpedal as fast as they are starting to on net zero. Uh, even I am shocked at how much of oh it's, it turns out it's just a political promise. We're not actually going to try and do this. Um, this is madness. Nobody ever thought it was possible. Um, It's a bit like that vaccine line where we didn't, you know, nobody was forced to take the vaccine. It's it's extraordinary how much of a 180 um, has happened on all of these climate change related issues. Uh, We've got scientists now saying there's no climate emergency. And that's that's quite a mainstream perspective even within science. So I think that reversal from climate change being a cult, um, I think you and I wrote about it comparing it to the children's crusade where it's, it's just yeah. absolutely, you know, nobody's allowed to question it. Um, even asking a question if you're a believer is, is not permitted. We've gone from that to uh, it being politically correct to openly acknowledge that renewables don't work properly, net zero is m- impossible, um, and, and even openly questioning whether even climate change is a bad thing. It might might be a good thing for the UK, uh, according to some UK politicians, and, and they were not crucified for saying that. That reversal is is extraordinary and extreme because of the amount of impact it would have had on us if we'd stuck with what net zero renewables had promised for us in the future um that you know it, it really is the titanic that's turned
0: well nikolai i'm gonna have to push back on you on some of this stuff i was woken yesterday morning to the sound of bagpipes right and i uh, i rolled over and i went back to sleep I was then woken by the sound of a just-stop-oil protest marching through <laughs> Princes Street. So uh, you're telling me there's been some massive reversal in opinion on this? I sure as hell don't see it. And I'd love to hear more about British politicians who've gotten away with saying that climate change is actually good for the UK. Because I say it all the time. I want Scotland to be the south of France. Um, but, you know, that's mostly a joke. Um I don't see there's this massive sea shift. You'll see in London with the ULES zone that they have backpedaled a bit from it being a net zero zone, Um, but it's still a ULES zone and it's still making life very difficult for people there. I've not seen this incredible reversal.
1: Just to be clear, though, Boaz, your presence in Scotland is, is purely a cover story and, and mentioning the bagpipes is purely a cover story, right? Because you are actually one of the Blade Runners that's been destroying these ULEZ cameras in order to sabotage the ULEZ effort um, and yeah, the, the bagpipes. I actually used to be able to play two different songs on the bagpipes, um, but in this case, it wasn't me that was playing the bagpipes
0: outside. Here. And certainly
1: it wasn't me protesting against oil live
0: yeah, it's uh, no. I am indeed in Edinburgh right now. I, while I have been a Blade Runner, um, right now I am in Edinburgh, alas, and enjoying the terrible weather we have. Yeah. So what I think is going on is they're
1: pushing things too far, too fast, and they're getting backlashes each time. And I think that the worm has turned against. So the direction of change, the rate of change, the direction of change is is what's it's what's shifted. We still have ULEs, but. If they're not able to expand ULES, then I'm not so sure ULES is going to last much longer either because there's no point having it just in central London, nowhere else. I mean, in order to combat climate change effectively, we are going to have to, if you believe the science in inverted commas, we are going to have to shut down all the airports. We're going to have to not, you know, we're talking about worse than World War II rationing, according to um, Professor Steve Keen, um, the economist. You know, it's going to be, they basically they've massively overplayed their hand and people have woken up to that and so now i think that inflection point has happened it's already happened in public opinion i think it was lord frost who said um so the former briggs negotiator who said that it might actually be beneficial to britain because uh, far more uh, cold related deaths occur in the uk than heat related and that's quite the norm around the world for, for most of the world um so therefore global warming would be a good idea um and the fact that he wasn't torn apart for that was a surprise.
0: You know, devil's advocate here. But, you know, Steve Keen is something of a, of a fringe economist. I don't feel like his... Well, I find his views very interesting. I don't think his views are very widely held. Um, I mean, if you look to someone... Uh, you know, what mainstream economists are changing their views on this? Because I don't see any of that. If you look at it, you know, you look at what gets published in the FT. Because um, that's the only pay... I don't read much news, but I do read the FT... Uh, it does seem like um, consensus has not shift, shifted yet.
1: So, for example, Shell recently abandoned its multi, I think it's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of spending on carbon offsets. Uh, that was reported in the FT. I think there was some articles about how much space it would require if we were to shift to renewables, meaning solar and wind, how many acres of land and whether that's even possible. Uh, there's been some good reporting on the fact that So the market's not pricing in net zero. If the market believed we were headed for net zero, copper would go through the roof, nickel would go through the roof, all these commodities would be going bananas, BHP, Rio, Shell, and so on. They'd be investing hundreds of millions, actually tens of billions in future production of the resources needed for the shift to renewables. They're not. None of that's happening. The companies are not investing in the future production that would be needed. The companies that are building the wind turbines are struggling um, and their the resources are not shifting. So the FT has covered that That is as, as an underlying topic, um, I think, several times. But the, the big shift is in places where the sorts of things that we would say that we're saying now as well used to be considered pl- too politically incorrect to publish. And now they're starting to gain some traction. Um, we saw this with uh, the Brexit referendum where, you know, if you said anything anti-EU, you're racist and evil and terrible. And then all of a sudden it became more okay. And then all of a sudden there was a prime minister who's a Brexiteer eventually. We're seeing it in Australia right now with a referendum about whether we should acknowledge um, the indigenous uh, population's um, role in in how Australia was founded and then also establishing a, a body. Nobody knows what the body is, but it advises parliament on indigenous issues. When we set out with that referendum, the no vote was just you know, maligned and sidelined and considered racist. and all some, But that's changed now. And now it's by far the uh, more popular opinion is to vote no. Um, that's radically shifted in the last few months. And I think each time the sign of future change is when going anti-establishment becomes acceptable. So the way Nigel Farage says it to me all the time is, well, now we have a debate, a fair debate. It's not always fair, but now we, at least there is a debate. That's when things really shift in the favor of what we've been saying because it makes more sense.
0: So I I do definitely think that the uh, you know the consensus on all of this green stuff and ESG has definitely moved in the opposite direction. Um, I thought you know one sign of the times here was uh, Bernard Looney, uh, CEO of BP, getting uh, axed this week, um, and you know he wasn't axed as a result of his green stuff. He was axed because he. Uh, <laughs> Well, I don't know what the polite way of putting it really is. I guess he just really likes banging his employees. But, um, you know, I thought it was very much a sign of the times because Looney was... That's another B. That's another B word we could add to the uh, <laughs> to the list. Yeah. Yeah. And Bernard as well. You know, Bernard bangs his employees. I think... Um, well, I just thought it was sign of the times because he was one of these guys who'd taken what was a great oil company and then was turning it into this... Um, into this green transition vehicle thing, uh, which isn't very good. And, yeah, there's huge underperformance of BP relative to the majors. Um, I used to be, I used to love ExxonMobil. I still do as they just, they just like make pulling oil out of the ground. They don't try and do all of this green ESG stuff. I've definitely seen a sea change when it comes to ESG uh, and people talking about greenwashing is much more prevalent now, uh, but I, I don't really feel like the the dialogue has really changed that much when it comes to, to climate change, global warming, etc. Personally, I don't even have a view on it. Um, I just don't like it when there is obvious um, corralling of capital into unproductive uh, industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can find something better than oil, that's cleaner than oil, fantastic. But uh, I don't feel like wind farms are really doing it for us yet. Greenwashing is another good example of of the topic that has
1: heavily been covered in the FT, right? And I agree with you about those companies that shifted away from their core businesses into trying to make some money off the climate change, what should we call that, racket. Um, And to be fair, that was quite a profitable racket in 2021. And in 2022, it all fell apart very dramatically. And the companies that didn't shift parts of their business into that racket did very well. So... I think it was BHP sold one of its coal mines to Glencore and in 2022 as part of its climate change shift. And then apparently that became the, the most profitable commodity trade ever um, because it just made Glencore's profit in 2022 go absolutely bananas on a revaluation of that coal mine as the coal price surged. That was, I think I read that in the FT, that it was the, the most profitable trade ever. Um, so there's ebbs and, and um you know ebbs and flows in this in this climate change, you know, com- uh, fossil fuel story, back and forth. But I think one way to think about it is, if they wanted to go any further than they have gone so far, for example, if they wanted to expand uh, ULEZ, if they wanted to ban our gas stoves, if they want to do this, if they want if they want to go any further, I don't think people are going to put up with it anymore. I think that's that's. um the shift, another way to describe the shift that's happened. Uh, and that's why markets never really considered this to be plausible, why they never moved. Um, and I think we'll look back on what has been the last three years, or at least was 2021, as a year that was just like the hydrogen boom that we had, I think it was in the 90s. You know, we've had EV booms before. We've had all of this before. Um, we haven't had the climate change hysteria to the extent we've had it today. But financial markets and and I guess politicians love having these hype cycles in certain industries where there's a boom and then there's a bust. And then everyone sort of seems to move on and just forgets about the fact that the world was supposed to end
0: a few years ago. Sure, but it does move the Overton window in a certain direction. I think we never go fully back. Each time we're always stepping forward and each time we are setting an example of what the government can do to push these uh, initiatives forward to a certain degree. And we never really go entirely back from that we never totally um revert to the way it was before which makes me feel like this is just going to happen again because uh you know we do get some crazy weather around the world at the moment it doesn't seem to be uh subsiding much we'll probably get a lot more this will just lead to more calls for another attempt by the government to intervene in the economy somehow what makes you think this is going to be more permanent
1: i think the fact that if they want to impose more on us they're going to get too much fight back so it's sort of, none of this really matters until you have to pay for it or it really impacts you directly. Yeah. Um, and so the science says we can emit a certain amount and, and not ruin the, the, the climate. We're going to w- emit multiples of that way. It's going to go way beyond that level. So we're going to run that experiment. And if the world ends, then the world ends. I don't think <laughs> they're going to be able to prevent that. But if it doesn't, then everyone's going to be sitting there thinking this is a bit ridiculous. Like we've, we, they, they didn't stop the emissions and the world didn't end. And so I think that there is a wake-up call there, uh, especially amongst young people, obviously. And then they start to question everything else. Um, but I suppose I would have said that about the pandemic, and I'm not sure it has happened um, to any significant extent in terms of the pandemic. It's that story with the... with? Uh, um, Polls, when they do the polls, people are asking, do you want to do something about climate change? Yes. Do you want to pay for it? No. And we've gotten to the point where now any incremental increase in the crackdown on emissions actually does hit you in the pocket. So now people say no.
0: My, uh, my general view is that all of this virtue signaling about various topics um, from climate change to social justice, etc., I don't think it survives the cost of living crisis. I think that's um, I think people in the low inflation, low interest rate period of the 2010s, you could just people could care about all the stuff and demand violent government action in one way or another to target it or fix some kind of problem. And when you are getting massively squeezed on your disposable income, I don't think you can I don't think people care about it anymore. I think people care much more about how they're going to uh, further their lives, you know, how they're going to be able to pay their mortgage or pay their rent. and uh, everything else just is secondary to that. Um, and so the crisis becomes something more like housing. Um, people start uh, worrying more about immigration. I think we had 600,000 net immigration into the UK last year, which is just an extraordinary figure um and instead of thinking about uh you know wildfires in australia for example uh, i think that that is so you think some alternative crisis is going to replace
1: the climate change crisis rather than you know all the politicians putting up their hands and saying i'm sorry we got this wrong <laughs> whoops there's going to going to be uh east asia we're going to be at war with east asia instead of with um whatever it is what's what's east asia Oceania and, and what's the what's the third continent in Orwell?
0: Oh, Eurasia.
1: Eurasia, East, yeah. So uh, we're gonna have to swap who we're at war with from climate change to someone new.
0: Well, these nebulous wars never really work. The war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on climate change, the war on COVID. I don't think they. The war on nothing's worked nothing. <laughs> the war on on zero. Even the Germans are still there after after two
1: after two. The Germans are still there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What's your okay? Do you want to keep talking about net zero and uh, and all that or do you want to sw- switch gears because a lot's happened in the last year that we could talk about regarding europe i suppose i'll
1: just spin the question to you what you think is the, the biggest shift that's occurred
0: also in the last 12 months since the last episode of booze booms and busts what is the biggest shift um i think the shift is kind of uh is is just going in the same direction and this is to uh, we are ever more obviously in a repeat of the 1970s right now. Uh, I think that's ever more prevalent today than it was a year ago, and that was still my view a year ago. So uh, inflation's bloody high. People, you know, politicians are trying to like jawbone it up or down, um, or jawbone you know, down the problem. And uh, I, yeah, I think the cost of living is becoming very difficult, especially for millennials. I think, um, I think one thing. Yeah, I'm very interested to see is, is, is how the millennial generation uh, reacts uh, politically in coming elections, etc. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's just obvious that we're in the stagflationary period. I'm very worried about what happens uh, during a recession when we actually get a you know, publicly acknowledged recession. I think that's very bad. Uh, I think there's all, sort of, all, all sorts of externalities, social externalities that could become very, very bitter and very uh, tragic and very hard. And I'm I'm quite worried about that. Um, But yeah, I mean, over the last, I mean, I've been working in the, I've been working in the crypto space um, for the last year and it's a very interesting space to be in when, you know, when when, inflation is very high and when VC money is drying up, etc. So, uh, in terms of one big thing, I'd probably just say uh, my conviction is even it's even stronger that we're back in the 70s again. People are calling on the government to fix all the problems. The government's not doing a very good job of it. Central banks don't want to do anything about the inflation. Um, and it, the young are really uh, are under a huge amount of pressure. What's different about it yeah, from back in the 70s is that uh, in the 70s, it was the old people that got screwed. And this time around, it's the young people that are getting screwed. Uh, which is uh, very uh, yeah quite quite different stuff when you say you 're
1: worried about it uh, what what are the consequences of the implications or or is it the response from the government like what makes you worried or what are you worried about
0: i 'm just worried about the the level of chaos the level of distrust and um, the level of danger that might be uh, that might be uh, felt by the public, the level of um Pain, despair. Uh, so, for example, you know, the number of young women using who are who are selling their bodies on OnlyFans. For example, how do you think that's going to go during a recession, right? Because it's probably going there's probably going to be a lot more of them doing it, and that's going to make <laughs> excuse me, that's going to make the uh, the amount of money they get from it go down as well. So, <laughs> the amount of value that's getting extracted will be lower. It's going to cheapen everybody. Um, yeah, it's just going to be very. Very bitter. And I, I, yeah, I don't like it at all. I mean, just for example, so uh, an investment strategist I know shared, a, shared an article recently. It was just from the Daily Mail, but it was talking about how, I think it was the CEO of Iceland, you know, the um, the cheap uh, frozen goods, frozen food company. Uh, you know, they had had three attacks on their employees with HIV infected needles. So that is that is like seriously messed up. Uh, this is something that this is an urban myth we used to talk about in school. You know, oh yes, uh, there are people who put HIV-infected needles in like cinema seats. You know, just to give you and, like it was bullshit. But this is now happening, and it's like we're not even in a recession yet, Dave, if you believe the government figures. So what what kind of other diabolical, strange things do we see take place? Um, uh, yeah, when when actually everybody's getting screwed.
1: When you gave your, your list of things at the beginning I was like, these these sound great. You know, distrust in the government it sounds great. Lack of faith, you know, people waking up to the fact that government doesn't solve things. Every time the government targets a particular measure, it gets worse. So that's the awakening that occurs before, you know, an actual ideological shift, i.e. what followed the seventies. Now I'm not so sure like the Thatcher, and especially Reagan did a particularly good job of putting into practice what they preached. I'm not sure whether they believed it, but they at least said the right things. And that worked with the electorate for a reason. And it's because the public went through this realization that the government causes the problems. It doesn't solve them. You shouldn't trust the government because it doesn't have your best interests at heart. Um, And you shouldn't trust experts either. You know, you shouldn't trust the idea that someone like a central bank can run an economy properly, which is one of the the things that went wrong in the 70s. Um, And you you shouldn't trust large groups of, you know, just as you shouldn't trust the moneyed interest, you shouldn't trust unions and and things like that. You know, they're just looking out for themselves. There's that ideological shift that happens because of all of these realizations. So it's that old mantra about, you know, you have to, experience the consequences of your bad decisions before you figure out that they were bad decisions. Um, you know, we're grown ups. We don't have adults to tell us that you know, this is a bad idea, guys. Um, and we've, we've, we did this and we know it's a bad idea. We haven't got that. Um, so obviously some of the latter things you said sound pretty miserable to me too, but this is just reality, consequences, reckoning. It's a good thing.
0: I yeah, I make the different. I think if we do like from what you describe, it's like we're going to go through the seventies and then we're going to get the golden era of the eighties. I don't see that happening, uh, and if it does happen, it's a long, long bloody way away. So, uh, you know, we're to, It's many, many years of seventies of the nineteen seventies, maybe even a decade of it before we get some kind of turnaround. I don't think people have any appetite for. Um, Less government when they're broke and you know they can't they they're going to get their home repossessed or they are going to be.
1: But that, that's why we call them the seventies and the eighties, not the first half of the seventies, the second half, or, or you know the, this nineteen seventy one. It's it's that it takes ten years to, for for people to figure it out, at least apparently.
0: Sure, uh, but <laughs> you know it is twenty twenty three now. Um. We do like to stack these things into decades. So, beginning of 2020 is when this all started to go slightly wrong. 1970, you know, the world was still on the gold standard. 1971 was thing where was when things started to go really, really wrong. And I think it's when is it that um, uh, the European nations lose their uh, lose their fixed exchange rates? I think it's 1972 or 73. Um, oh, it's happened many times actually <laughs> oh well no, but from the Bretton Woods system, so uh when Nixon famously says, "I don't give a shit about the lira um because they were about to they were about to um there was so much selling pressure on the lira that can, can maintain the exchange rate mm-hmm. like all of this stuff that means we're still very early and this is going to get way worse, Nikolai, so I'm not optimistic about this, <laughs> and I would rather believe that something else was going to happen instead. But, um, yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. If, oh, so do you think... I'm looking forward Oh, right. okay, let's hear it, let's hear it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great to see all these people who have been doing these ridiculous things get their reckoning that they deserve uh, and for the prudent people to finally display why, why prudence is a good idea. Uh, and the fact is, it just takes very long time for these, these cycles to occur, and it's really difficult to sit there and be prudent. Over such a long period of
0: time, you think the people who make the bad decisions are the ones that suffer the consequences?
1: Yes, uh, unless you are not prudent. Like, if, if obviously, if, if you are um, taking part in, in all of these these um, only fans activities, as such, <laughs> then you are going to get what's coming to you then as well. But um, obviously, the rest of us do suffer as well. But there is fairly easy ways to make sure that you benefit in the long run. Um, you know, this is a buying opportunity. That's what the, the early eighties was buying opportunity. And that's when all that property wealth.
0: Yeah, but we're, we're, we're a long way away from that. We're, we are about six years away from Bloomberg business. Week talking about the death of equities, uh, famously on the front cover.
1: That's I think open to debate, which is, the debates going to be incredibly vague. Cause <laughs> there's a lot of factors there, but, um, nevertheless. The you know the the cheaper things get, the better for for people who understand that and wait. Um, and it's not like we can avoid it. I, I I would say it's not like we can avoid it. I mean, is there any other way out? You you said you you would you wanted you'd rather be predicting something else. Um, short of some sort of miracle space exploration and mining effort, um,
0: I don't see what, what 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 else could be out there. Yeah, we need some kind of uh, wonder technology to be to be released. Personally, I'm not holding my breath for fusion uh, or, you know, quantum computing, making some kind of uh, shift that makes our lives all that much easier. And you already know my views on AI. If uh, if
1: fusion or AI or what was the semiconductor story, the the room temperature superconductor, um, if any of these stories were uh, were genuine, I'm sure the government would find a way to make a mess of it. Uh, and also the fact that we're so desperate for a miracle is is sort of the point, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's we're at the what's the is it a Hail Mary pass in American football? we just we're just throwing Hail Marys now. We're just hoping that these uh, fake scientific revolutions in battery technology that come out every few days uh, are
0: real, because <laughs> if they're not, if one of those doesn't turn out to be real, we're in trouble. I think uh, the AI story is mostly a nothing burger, uh, as we've already discussed. Uh, once upon a time, that was several months ago. Um, But and yet the government is already is very much trying to trying to mess it all up, get in there, make sure nothing uh, nothing good comes of it. Um, Yeah. okay. What is your thoughts on uh, the state of play with uh, with Europe at the moment? Because you are a big student of uh, of European politics, economics, etc. Seems like things are getting pretty messy on the continent at the moment.
1: Yeah, especially in, in Germany. Um, so my book, How the Euro Dies, it focused a lot on Italian politics. And Matteo Salvini said the euro is a crime against humanity, and then he stuck with it. So what does that make him? And it seems to me that the next phase is AFD in Germany, Alternative for Deutschland. Uh, and they might be the real deal, but they're a really mixed bag. They're a bit bizarre themselves. Um, and then you've got uh, Kennedy in the US, who's, again, a mixed bag in his ideas, let alone the people that might be supporting him. Um, So strange things are happening, especially in Europe, where, for now at least, politicians that get elected on very populist platforms, they just do what I would regard as the opposite to Nigel Farage. They just don't do what they say they're going to do. It's very clear um, that it doesn't really matter who you vote for. Even when you go for the so-called far-right party, they still just go mainstream. They don't do anything that's that they said they were going to do. They don't do anything their voters voted to go in and do. So I guess voters just keep on going for more extreme. Uh, and maybe the AFD is, is finally a genuine party for change, half of which I think is good and half of which I think is terrible. But The point being that people are forced to vote ever more extreme because whenever they try and vote slightly alternative, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, I don't know what pressure it is that's happening inside the top of European politics that manages to drag in, you know, what was the Cyprus in Greece? um, You know, he was the firebrand and then we had Salvini and then we've got Maloney and all these, they just, they amount to nothing. They didn't change anything, didn't do anything, they didn't achieve anything, they just follow it's as if they're plants from you know the european union's um, political perception of things so there must be some sort of underlying power in there that makes them change so much and the 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 most bizarre part of it is salvini lost all of his support he's, he's like a minor party a leader now a leader of a minor party because he didn't stick to what he said he was going to do so um so it doesn't make any sense for them to do that for their own self-interest. So I don't understand what it is that, that's going on at those levels. Uh, but in the end, all of the the pressures that are caused by sharing your currency are still there. Their economies are struggling. Their, the UK is leaving them behind. Over time, it's just going to get worse and worse. And then, as you've mentioned just a minute ago, the immigration issue gets even worse. So that that is one of the things I thought you were going to say when you, you said you were worried, was that the democratic Pressure goes in bad directions. Um, you know, you do get a genuine far right someone who even the two of us would consider far right. You know, being libertarians, <laughs> we probably get far, called far right all the time. But someone we would consider to go far right, so very nationalist and, and very interventionist in the economy, um, which is not a good combination.
0: Yeah, there's so many so many elements of this we could we could um, explore. So. With elected, with elected officials inside of Europe, as you say, they, they say all this stuff to get elected, that they're going to shake things up. And then when they actually get in, they don't do anything. Um, I mean, well, what you say there's some sort of power there. So where, well, where is the power here? So is this something coming from the civil service? Is this something coming from NATO? Is this something coming from the EU apparatus inside of that country? You know, where is it coming from?
1: Well. I mean I just had a vision of what yes prime minister and yes minister would look like in in the various different countries of Europe like if we had an Italian version of yes minister or, or a German version of, it would I don't think it would function in any language other than English um, with the you know British culture behind it because the, yeah they just don't have that same perception of how the civil service really is and what really goes on behind the scenes. Um, I think they still respect their civil service and they consider them to be important and powerful people, whereas we see them as being a bit iffy and manipulative and what's really going on there and there's the revolving door and things like that. So uh, uh, it could be the civil service in these European countries. It could be the threat of what happened at Cyprus where the EU, the ECB, the IMF really, you know, played hardball with them. Um, And in the end, they were bluffing. Maybe they're just bluffing. Maybe that's what it is. They're just bluffing. Um, I think the most likely explanation is that they're purely political opportunists. They want to have a career at the top of politics. Um, They don't actually want to do anything when they get there. And they know that if they actually try and do something. Well, they're probably just surprised that they like get given responsibility to try and achieve something and they've got no idea what they're doing. Mm. Um, I met a few high-profile politicians um, about a year ago, actually. Um, and what strikes me is that being a politician is a career and they understand what their interest groups want. They don't really want to be making decisions. I don't think they want to make impose policies or make decisions. I think those around them push that. And we don't vote for who is around them. We don't vote for their spads and their advisors and their lobbyists and their donors. Um, and I think the electoral process and running a country are two wildly different things. And the type of person who wins an election is the type of person who's good at the electoral process, not the type of person who's good at running a country. And we've seen that, especially in the UK politics over the last year and a bit, uh, where prime ministers come and go because
0: once they get there, they've got no idea what they're actually doing. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, I was reading a book on history of Zimbabwe recently. Um, I find the, like the Rhodesian Bush war or the second Chimarenga, depending on what side you're on, pretty interesting. Um, And the way in which Britain sort of uh, treated its most loyal colony uh, during that period, very, very interesting. And one of the sort of the arguments from the Rhodesian side, the Rhodesian uh, government, which was a white minority government, was that if you go to a uh, majority rule in quick fashion, uh, as they had seen taking place in the Congo, uh, in their neighboring country, you rapidly saw a politicization of the civil service, whereby it was impossible to get anything done um, if you weren't on side with the civil servants. And ironically, this did actually happen in Rhodesia before, <laughs> excuse me, before majority rule took place, where uh, the Rhodesian civil service would prevent certain things from happening, which they thought were, um, were just not the right things to do. Uh, but it made me think about, you know, politicization of civil service and why this is something that you don't want to have in a country. But I certainly think we have very politicized civil service in the UK. And I would struggle to think for a Western current country which doesn't have a politicized civil service. You saw something very similar when Trump took office in the States. And, um, yeah, I, I imagine that's the case in most places. Now, would you disagree?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think there's another element to this, which is that the civil servants who speak up against the perceived wisdom and outside the window, they tend to get fired. So we had a, an example of this in Australia where the head of the Snowy Hydro 2 scheme, which is a massive hydropower built out, um, he basically said that the hydrogen side of things that was proposed by the new government wasn't going to work. And he had a, a very long history in, in public service, very well respected, and he was gone very really quickly. <laughs> uh, and he went out after that saying none of this renewable stuff is going to work. Um, So, I guess within uh, the civil service, yeah, I think there's, um, and we've seen this as well with the the claims that the civil service was crying on the eve of the Brexit referendum, the people crying about that. Um, So, I suspect within the civil service, the more powerful impact will be just sort of career motivation and ambition and things like that um you know it's a greasy poll applies probably within the civil service as much as, um, as to politics uh, i think that would probably be the more dominant um factor and the way to get ahead in the civil service is gonna be to push things like climate change because it gives them more power
0: yeah which doesn't really bode well for uh, whatever the electorate want to take place to take place uh which makes me th- makes me think uh well, it makes me believe that's why things don't really happen uh, the way many people intend them to in this country and why things actually don't really change that much. So houses being built, et cetera, um, immigration being controlled. Like, I just don't think this uh, this really happens.
1: Yeah, those are good examples of, of things that seem to get stuck. Um, part of the story there, though, is what's especially important in um, British and, and Britain, um, that, that a political heritage. So we've got the separation of powers at a different level, the vertical separation of powers. So local government, state government, um, federal government in Australia, where the different power structures go against each other, right? So the federal government, um, the national government might wanna build 100,000 houses, but the local government might just say no in each different place. Or the federal government might wanna impose lots of, w- how many windmills it is. The Local governments, well, where are you gonna build them? Cause we don't want them. Um, so that's working as it's supposed to, almost, um, and doesn't really matter what you vote for. You know, there's probably a lot of people voting Tory um, for you know, they're going to do something about the climate, and then they vote Tory in local, saying, "Well, no windmills here." That's
0: their own. Yeah, yeah. it seems like uh, it does seem like a bit of a mess. Though I think we've um, we've kind of reached a standstill with this conversation as well, because it's more like you know this is why why things don't really change. <laughs> I've noticed. Um, as, I, as I get older, I become more and more frustrated that, ne- that things never really seem to change. The existing trends just become more and more long in the tooth and um, existing, say, you know, the boomer millennial wealth divide just continues to be more exacerbated. I don't feel like things really change in, uh, in many big ways, though maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places. So one of the things uh, which you mentioned earlier, Nikolai, was that the 1970s were a buying opportunity, uh, so if we are in the 90s, again, you know, the prudent can just allocate the capital accordingly and we will, uh, you know, we'll be able to uh, benefit from the situation. One thing I'm worried about is if uh, things don't go well this decade, uh, that the idea of you know, investing in in capital markets for, for, you know, anyone can really do it in the UK right now. This is something that actually becomes much more tightly controlled and the benefits from uh, investing prudently are, can't actually be reaped. They're uh, either through capital controls, either through uh, credit controls, which uh, I think are something that uh, we can easily see take place, where the government starts getting banks to do its dirty work. I I do wonder whether or not rational investing uh, is something that will actually be rewarded, depending on how uh, the politics goes, or even if we get some much more interventionist uh a government in the future which actually prevents people from accessing capital markets at all and this becomes something uh you know much more fascist or a much more uh socialist uh situation where you can, you know the public don't uh, don't you know owning assets uh that are you know say for example in commodity companies aren't something that the public can really do anymore um what would you say to that do you think we're never going to get to that level
1: yeah i think CBDCs and in rent control those are the ones you got to worry about right now because that's where the wealth is in the property markets and and constraining how people can move their money around those are the two jugulars that i think they're going to go for um and those are the two that young people are going to vote for because they understand they're not going to be able to afford to buy a house so they want cheap rent um and that's going to destroy obviously the property value of, of all that wealth that's been accumulated so those are the two i, I would really worry about my response though is this is why you and I focus so heavily on non-financial assets when we wrote about what to invest in. Um, it's about getting some of your wealth off the grid so that it can't be as easily targeted as some of the traditional financial assets. And I would also argue that we've already started to see this this net tightening. Actually, better analogy or metaphor is you know when you walk into a haunted house and the door slams shut behind you. Right now, everybody's walking into this haunted house where they're plying all their money into the financial markets in order to fund their retirement via all these tax benefit schemes. This is disproportionately true in Australia, but uh, the UK has adopted basically a good chunk of Australia's pension system with the um, opt-out pension contributions. So everybody's money is you know, getting plowed into this system. Well, at some point, the door going to slam shut behind you. You're gonna turn around. You're going to go, well, that actually means that all of my savings are in this politically controlled, gated entity of a pension and if they want to tomorrow declare they're going to raise the taxes on that or if they want to declare tomorrow that they're going to constrain how much money I can take out during retirement or if they're going to constrain what I can invest in they can do that to me because it's within this politically controlled entity of of a pension and that's starting to happen in Australia they started to control how easily you can get your money out of your super they're talking now about taxing very high super balances so obviously you know the the shift isn't i mean in any good good horror movie they you know it's a long movie so the the door slammed shut and now they're slowly gonna you know pick us off one by one um you know the wealthiest one first um but it's that horror movie of um you know in the end we're all we're all gonna get killed
0: (laughs) well very optimistic i must say Nikolai. Yeah, you know, to change gears slightly, what exactly are you drinking? Because we generally did do a uh, a recap in previous episodes of what the, what the beers were.
1: I don't know how to describe this. You're bang for your buck, so the most cost effective beer, given its taste, in the world. Um, oh, where's my camera? This sounds you very 1970s, indeed. Oh, it's backwards on camera. What was I need to reverse my camera angle? It's a Pilsner. So it's a German import beer, um, actually made in Germany. It's a Pilsner. Uh, And it's incredibly cheap
0: for some reason. Uh, But it tastes incredibly good as well. I don't know, Nikolai. I've had Ettinger Export before and I didn't think it tasted that good. Is it better in Australia? Does it travel well?
1: It's definitely the same. You you have to
0: be German to like this beer, I think.
1: Um, And and you have (laughs) to like Pilsner's as well. Um, So maybe maybe that's the constraint. Um, This is my my go-to beer now for... Yeah, but I guess because it's so cost-effective, it's so much cheaper. in Australia and in Japan, beer is is taxed very highly. In fact, in Japan, beer is taxed significantly higher than most other alcoholic drinks, including a lot of spirits. Um, So, um, as a result, you have to be careful what you drink in Japan. Uh, And Japan has created an entire niche market of things that taste exactly like beer but are technically not under Japanese tax law, which is called Haponshu. I see. Um, and so, as as far as anyone in the world is concerned, it is beer, but just not according to Japanese tax law.
0: Hmm. So why do the Japanese hate beer?
1: Uh, because it's not a local, um, traditional Japanese industry. Um, is my best guess. So you tell me, Asahi isn't. So it's well, Asahi is made with rice. Asahi's not local. So, and so it's probably an unusual exception, but um, so they want to encourage people to drink things that are traditionally Japanese, which are um, obviously Nihon Shu, which you guys are called sake, so rice wine, Um, but more importantly, Shochu. So Shochu can be made in various different ways. It's similar to vodka. Um, That's the traditional spirit um, in Japan. And so they're more favorable. They're less taxed. They're more favored in the tax system than beer. Um, But, you know, there's a big craft beer boom in Japan happening. That's been happening for a while now, actually. And those craft beers that I used to see in Japan and drink in Japan are now popping up in, in the bottle shop in Australia. So um, they're coming to
0: a, a bottle shop near you too. That's interesting. You know, the only reason I'm in Edinburgh at all is I'm helping a friend of mine who was a brewer uh, move to a new brewery in Edinburgh. And uh, he was up in Elgin, uh, which is in the middle of nowhere uh, beforehand. And now he's now he's moving down to the capital. And uh, we were, yeah, you know, we we're both big beer enthusiast and he actually makes this stuff and we were both remarking how the craft beer revolution is dead so it was very much a uh, low interest rate low inflation phenomenon of the early 2010s that's when brew dog made it this really cool thing to just start a craft craft brewery and now uh it really does feel like it's dying in the uk It's something that kind of uh, exploded and then it was bad and now it's kind of fizzled out you still get you know some large craft breweries out there, but in terms of the amount of money that was being spent, you know, on marketing uh, that you know these companies could do because it's such a big thing, they they kind of ran out of that. And we're if, it, if we were both sort of agreeing that it's dead, but maybe in Japan it's uh, you know we passed the buck. Japan is meant to be what twenty years? Um, well, it's meant to be twenty years ahead of us or ten years ahead of us. I mean, does this mean it's going to be another craft beer revolution in the UK? Yeah, in twenty years' time. I am. Um, I used to used to live next to Elgin, one town
1: over in Forres, um, and I went to. What were you doing there? Uh, my mum lived there. My mum bought a house and lived in Forres, and um, we went to Elgin many times. And uh, one day we went to the beach, the beach near Elgin, and Lossiemouth, and um, I rolled my ankle in the sand dunes, playing in the sand dunes, quite badly. So I couldn't couldn't even like walk, couldn't even hobble along, and uh, my mum sort of ran off to try and find help and my mum's German and um, she ran off and she was thinking to herself, I need to find someone with a wheelbarrow in order, you know, I would sit in the wheelbarrow and they'd wheel me to to the hospital or whatever. And the first person she met was a German (laughs) with a wheelbarrow (laughs) in the Scottish island. (laughs) Yeah. So uh,
0: what was this, what was this guy's story?
1: Uh, I cannot remember. I was in a lot of pain. I, I have no idea. I have no idea. And in the end, he didn't use the wheelbarrow. He just carried me. Um, yeah. Oh.
0: Germans looking out for each other, eh? That's right. Even in Elgin. <laughs> I had no idea you'd ever been to Elgin. That's hilarious. Many times.
1: Practically lived there. We went I, We went to the... Uh, my mum went to the, the New Age community in Findhorn. Um, not far oh, from, yes. from Elgin. Oh, yes. And uh, yeah, that was the learning experience.
0: <coughs> I hear a lot of stories about those guys, but I've never been myself.
1: I, I highly encourage going. Um, when I went, I was given um, the job of doing the washing up, um, which was very exciting. And um, there was lots of hand holding and uh, what they call tuning in. So, you had to hold hands and um, close your eyes. And then everybody spoke about
0: uh, how they were feeling. And, uh, and then we all did the washing up together. I, uh, yeah, for those listening, Finthorn is uh, like a hippie community in uh, the north of Scotland uh, we, yeah, where there's lots of uh, commun- communal stuff going on, lots of getting in tune with the environment, uh, all sorts of strange.
1: It's conveniently located next to the RAF Air Force Base at Kinloss.
0: Yeah, an odd, an odd place, though, uh, you know, interestingly, Elgin, even though it's further north than Aberdeen, it uh, has much better weather. Uh, the Moray microclimate is, uh, you know, for some reason, it's just always much, much warmer there, which is always a lot nicer. But anyway, Nikolai, we're ge- we are getting on for time here. For our final, final segment, do you want to give us something you're bullish on, something you're bearish on uh, from something you've seen take place this week? It's got to be this week, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, or just recently. Could be this month.
1: I am very bearish, the, the referendum in Australia. So I think what is going to occur in Australia is going to be very interesting, very similar to the Brexit referendum where the establishment and the civil service and the media are pushing one line, large companies as well, pushing one line. And everybody just decides is, they want to vote against it because they hate the media, the establishment, the political establishment, big business. They hate them. Um, so they'll vote against them. Um, at any given opportunity. And what's actually going on is completely lost. Um, So what actually Brexit means or what this referendum means is is sort of completely lost in the fact that people are rebelling, Um, which I think is a good thing, but that's up for debate. So I'm very bearish on the outcome of the referendum. I think that's going to be making international news because it's going to be another sort of dot in the line of people rebelling politically. Um, and I think it's going to raise the stakes. So we had you know, the Brexit referendum followed by Trump. Um, so I think these sorts of things do matter because according to Nigel Farage, a lot of the politicians uh, in the US said that um, Trump wouldn't have happened without the Brexit win, um, which is one of the reasons they invited him to, over to speak. Um, so if that if that's true, I think these sorts of things really matter, um, internationally even. It might seem a local, like a local issue, but I think it's going to really re-embolden and... and um, Re- reinvigorate any any anti-establishment movements politically, um, in, including in Europe. Another good example with the, the German AFD again rising. Um, what am I bullish on? What am I bullish? I'm bullish on the craft beer movement, actually. I'm going to say that um, things may well be settling, but I don't think people are going to go back to drinking what they used to. Um, and I think the big beer companies are going to continue to struggle to deal with, you know, we see a lot of them trying to crack into the craft beer movement um, and struggling to do that. I think that's going to persist. And I wonder if there's any other industries that are ripe for something like a craft beer movement that where we all, you know, we all buy the, the same select few brands, national brands, and um, people are going to turn away from that. Uh, maybe clothing I don't know. Can you think of anything that might crack in the same way that
0: the mm, Um Let's see. I mean, yeah, there needs to be a lot of variety so for it to work. So I would imagine, yeah, maybe clothing, but there are so many clothing brands already and there's so many micro brands out there as well. It does seem uh, hard to imagine what that would look like. And then with cars, automobiles, it does seem... Uh, you know, so highly regulated that it'd be very hard for anybody, for any startup to really uh, rival them. Uh, so it probably need to be something that's quite lightly regulated. Um, I don't know, maybe tea or coffee. That's kind of already happened just at the same time as the craft beer revolution was happening. You got all the uh, the small uh, coffee bean roasters and whatever.
1: Well, we'll ch- change the question slightly then. So what is, what is currently really heavily controlled by the government? Because alcohol and beer was... That they might, you know, some sort of lobby group might get together to, to unleash a creativity boom um, within. I think maybe housing is a good one. I've seen the type of housing that people build radically change over the last three or four years from, you know, the these bricks and concrete and things like that to, to what they'd have in Japan where it's almost modular um so you, you sort of put it together, and you can't quite tell what it's made of. You know, it looks like it's brick, but it's not. Or it looks like it's concrete, but it's not. It looks looks like it can blow away sometimes. But, <laughs> but um,
0: right. Presumably there's some sort of benefit to it. Um, which yeah maybe that'll. But it's enormously enormously controlled by the government. I don't think that the idea of a craft housing revolution seems quite. Uh, you know, nobody wants things to change.
1: Well, in Finton they live in barrels, right? They've got these giant wine or beer barrels that they've converted into
0: houses. Yeah, but those guys are like hippie, hippie nuts. But yeah, maybe, maybe we'll see a lot more of that. I mean, there were so many hippies in the 1970s, right?
1: Yeah, so the 70s repeating themselves. So what was the, the 70s um, hippies about drugs? There could be a boom in um,
0: in, in uh, recreational drug types and uses. Uh, I think if uh, you walk around the streets of Edinburgh at night, uh, or anywhere in Scotland for that matter, I think there's already a boom in recreational drug usage, Nikolai. I think that one's that one's yeah, I weird. mean, the variety, the, craft the variety. Drug So drug revolution. Know, maybe the, the,
1: all those, all the people, yeah, all the people that are skeptical about drugs because you know, drugs are awful. Maybe there's going to be some, some drugs that aren't, don't have quite the same consequences, which is what the, the drugs
0: in the 60s supposedly were trying to do. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, we have had, you know, medicinal marijuanas now something in, yeah, in think about the it. UK. The
1: legalization of, of drugs
0: would, um, I mean, alcohol. that far yeah maybe indeed we have gotten to an hour now Nikolai so we probably should tie it up uh, around there but yeah thank you so much for for coming on the show and uh, yeah hopefully we can do another one of these in the near future Uh, for everyone listening sorry if this uh, episode was a bit rusty Uh, it has we have been somewhat out of practice but uh, it is great to do these in the future we may change the format of the show uh, now that Nikolai's on uh, to make it uh, to make it work a bit better Um, but yeah Hopefully you enjoyed this. Hope somebody is still is still listening to this. It's been uh, great to record another episode. And uh, yeah, whenever we record the next one, we'll see you then. Bye bye.